I think that's really important for the industry going forward. And I urge anyone who is interested to reach out to farms in their area, Google places that allow farm tours and stuff like that, and really see how it is. And then you can make the decision yourself if you're okay with it or not. If you want to go to a grazing dairy instead of commercial milk, if you don't want to drink milk at all, if you don't want to eat beef or you do want to eat beef or what kind of beef, you know, I think it's important to see it for yourself and be comfortable with it. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What is up, everybody? I am Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash half hour intern. In today's episode, we explore the path of being a dairy cattle nutritionist with Nick Jenkins. So this is something I had no idea was even a thing. And uh, Nick is a veterinarian by background. He is a dairy cattle nutritionist by trade. So he goes to various large scale farms and helps them out with the nutrition that their dairy cattle needs to have in order to uh, stay resilient and not get diseases, in order to uh, have a good output of milk, and all types of other things. So he'll talk to us uh, at first about just kind of the perception of a large-scale farm versus a small-scale farm, and how large-scale farms are actually able to do a lot of wonderful things for their animals, and how we kind of need to change our perception of how we think about large-scale farms versus small-scale farms. And then for the remainder of the rest of the interview, we'll just dig into uh, the whole life of being a cow and of being a dairy cattle nutritionist and we'll learn a lot about milk and nick was nice enough to send over a lot of cool extra um, facts and documents and stuff like that after the interview so i will be putting all those up on the website so if after this you would like to get even more info about the milk that you are drinking or uh interesting information about the uh the dairy cattle world just head on over to halfhourintern.com and there will be further reading there for you without further ado here is dairy cattle nutritionist nick thanks so much for coming on the show today Thanks for having me, Blake. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to start this one out by reading the email that you sent in that led to you being right here in front of us on the show. Um, so in your email, you said, hello, I'm a veterinarian and a daddle, uh, a, a daddle, a dairy cattle consultant and nutritionist. I have loved listening to the podcast. Thank you very much, by the way. I have loved listening to the podcast and recently listened to the goat farmer episode. I would love to hear a fair, uh, I would love to hear a fair representation of careers dealing with commercial agriculture. I personally work with large dairy farms, and large farms are obviously not perceived as positively as small farms, which provide far less food, and from personal experience, far worse animal care. I think people would be interested to know about the complexity, cost, science, and art involved with providing wholesome animal products on a large scale. Thank you for taking the time to read this message. So, man, I would really love to dig into that. I was so intrigued when I read this for so many reasons. The first, which I told you just now when we, uh, when we first got on the phone together, is this, again, is just one of those perfect things for this show in that I didn't even consider before getting your email that this was a job that people do. You know, it's like I, I just kind of assumed that farmers, you know, fed their animals, whatever they wanted to feed them. And that was that. It, I, it never occurred to me that someone would hire a professional 
dairy cattle nutritionist just to like that's all you do is handle the nutrition for their cows but then the more that i thought about it and like i was just saying with you is like well yeah this has got to be like hundreds of millions if not billion dollar industry in the united states like how and you know all over the world of course a farmer is going to have someone that specifically specializes in just that like if something happens with your product with the end result the milk it's you know you need to protect that at all costs so you would want to have a real real specialized professional so it makes sense that you do what you do and i'm excited to learn more about it but in your email the the other main thing is obviously you talking about small scale farms versus large scale farms and that you want kind of a more fair representation of large scale farms that you don't think um is often kind of put out there so let's break that down at first a little bit and if you could please maybe tell us a kind of how you think uh, a large scale farm is perceived versus a small scale farm, and then talk about the actual care that your animals are getting, and you know the, the reality, I guess, versus what you think perception is. Sure, sure. So, I think that you know, just to start off, it it always will come down to the individual, just like you know when you talk about people. Um, so on dairies and and, you know i'm I'm speaking from personal experience uh the traditional way that things have been done since you know the 40s and 50s was a smaller scale uh system where farmers had you know a couple dozen cows maybe um, and even less and so in those systems you know it was kind of what you said where the farmer decides everything and does everything um involving the farm and also would do other things uh around the around their property and as things have gotten larger uh just like with many other industries things have gotten consolidated and farms have gotten bigger and bigger um so uh, when I get into thinking about the large versus small um, distinction, uh, you know, just always remember that it's it, it is dependent on an individual. But on the farms that I've been to, and and as I, you know, have talked to you in a few emails, I, I felt like I was kind of unique in this because I came into this agricultural field. Um, completely out of left field. So I, I grew up in South Florida and never was a farm kid or exposed to any of this and got into it during my undergrad degree. So um, I have all, I, I've come into it with eyes wide open and seeing everything. And so I've been on farms from, you know, small Amish dairies that have two or three cows to an organic dairy that has 10,000 cows. So I've been to a variety of different ones, and I've seen how it's done. Um, so you didn't grow up with any kind of preconceived notions about anything or prejudice one way or the other. You were just a blank not. slate starting out in this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously it has its pros and cons. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, a lifetime of experience I didn't have, but it also is a opportunity to uh, in- integrate you know, the newest information um, instead of being prejudiced, like you said. Right. So on smaller farms, it is more of that uh, farmer knows all of the animals individually and um, and stuff like that. And as they get larger, um, it's obviously a more complex situation. You have uh, 
hundreds, thousands of animals that need to be accurately identified and fed and treated and all of these things that that really go into that complexity I was talking about. As far as how it's perceived, um, there is there is this perception that you know as farms get larger, it's it's a factory farm, and that um, animals are necessarily treated as units, and that they aren't treated as uh, animals that you know can feel pain and that should treat be treated right. Versus smaller farms, where I feel like the view is more that. Uh, the animals are generally taken better care of and that they are valued more as a small farm. And in my experiences, it has not been uh, that cut and dry. So on a lot of smaller farms, it's, uh, you know, a older type of system. And so uh, oftentimes the environment that they're in is not necessarily ideal. Um they may not have the the newest technology or the ability to feed diets that can uh, help them both maximize their production as well as minimize their um, incidence of diseases uh, compared to large farms. And and you know I think that it's important to to realize that most people that go out and our farmers or that take care of all these animals, um, they care greatly about the well-being of the animal. And it's not just caring for the sake of making money. I, I think most of them do truly care that they take good care of the animals. Um, and as you get into systems that are uh, quite large and and have a lot of money coming in and out, it becomes more and more important that the animals are well taken care of to be efficient and to uh, maximize their their profitability at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. This is a concept that was uh, first kind of stated recently in the organic farmer episode that I have where he talked about traditional farmers and, and he was actually talking about the merits of traditional farming and traditional farmers as opposed to organic and saying that no they don't just beat down their land and like burn through their land and not care about their crops he's like a these people got into farming because they love the land and they love farming and he's like you know second of all obviously there is the profit piece which is you stand to make money from this land and these crops you're going to treat it really 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 well you're not just going to treat it like crap because this is your livelihood you know Um, So it certainly makes a lot of sense. So what are kind of the differences in the ways that you can care for the animals in these large scale farms that a small scale farm would not be able to do? Sure. So one of the biggest things is uh, tailoring the diets of animals uh, to a particular life stage. So obviously um, milk that you get from a cow is uh, from their, their udder. So, you know, just like a human lactates after they have a child, um, it's you, a cow has to have a calf before she can start giving you milk. And there's different stages of their life. If we use that as a, a starting point. So they give birth and then they have this early lactation period, um, which is about the three weeks after birth and the three weeks before birth of that calf is 
called the transition period. And that is the time in an animal's life where they are at the highest risk for anything bad happening. The vast, vast majority of it will happen at that stage of life. Hmm. Just what their immune system is, is kind of down from just having given birth or in pr- sure, preparing yeah. to give birth and then doing it. Yeah, their immune system is compromised. Um, they have a tremendous change in their metabolism. So we often use an example of um, an average person on the street and their metabolism and what they eat a day, say the you know 2,000 calorie recommendation. And then you look at Michael Phelps, who, you know, when he's training for the Olympics, you know, there are all those stories about, you know, the massive quantities of food that he had to eat to sustain himself, right? Mm -hmm. So a dairy cow, when she goes from being pregnant and not giving milk at the end of her lactation to then giving birth and starting lactation is similar from going from that guy on the street to Michael Phelps in a very short period of time. Right. And so it's very, very important to set her up right for the rest of the lactation as well as just her general health to make sure that she's eating the food that's going to be able to maintain her. And and that's one of the main reasons that I got into this field is that as a veterinarian, it's extremely important to me to you know, take care of the animals and minimize their disease and to fix whatever problems that are there. But I quickly realized that it made a lot more sense to try to prevent problems than to go around and fix them. And nutrition is one of the absolute number one main reasons for disease happening. And so you can prevent things from happening by giving adequate balanced nutrition. So so that's one thing. Amen so you to that, to stay, man. I, yeah. If only we all live like that, you know? Exactly. So early in lactation, um, they have much different requirements than late, um, late pregnancy. Um, and then as you go forward, if you have a lot of cows, you can separate cows based on how much milk they're producing. Um, so then you can feed them a little bit differently, the ones that are really high versus the ones that are just average. Um, you can... Another very important thing that we we try to do with most dairies is separate the first lactation cows. So the first calf that they have and the first time they start giving milk, we want to separate those cows from the older ones because just like in, you know, humans, anyone else, they are smaller, a little bit smaller, and they usually get pushed around by the older ones. So they're not able to eat as well. They're not able to lay down and rest as well because these older boss cows will come around and and push them around. So you have an ability to tailor groups of animals on a large dairy that's a little bit more difficult to do on a smaller one from a cost perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Secondly, you have the uh, ability to use some technology to to kind of you know look at what particular animals are doing and and to just look at things on a bigger scale um when you have more information and you may see that you have a higher incidence of something and and see those trends before you be able to see it in a small herd because there's just not that many numbers and and you don't know what's real and what's not oh right good point so um, and then there's the aspect of 
what you are going to feed, what you're going to pay for vets to come out, what you're going to do to treat an animal and things like that. The decisions get um, can be tough on smaller farms because, you know, there's limited there's limited income. So you can't um, necessarily do everything that you want. And it's just more of a um, it's more of a case by case situation on on really small farms compared to uh, really large ones where you can have like standard operating procedures and stuff like that, where you can, you know, essentially run the dairy like a business. And you know that if certain things happen, then then these are what we're going to do about it. And um, that kind of consistency is is really important for for large operations to run uh, well. And it's also important for cows because in in the daily life of a cow, just like a lot of animals, they love consistency. And whenever you have situations that change when things are happening, when they get fed, when they go to get milked, when someone comes and is is dealing with them as a veterinarian or as a herdsman or something like that, all of these things can disrupt them. They're very, very, they're very, very adaptable. And, and you can do a lot to dairy cows in terms of managing them. But one thing that really helps is consistency. And on small farms, it's hard to get the kind of consistency that a well-run large farm does just because, you know, if you wake up late one day, that changes when the cows are going to get milked or uh, your tractor breaks down and you can't feed them at the right time. So it's hours later. And these all go into how well the animals cope, their rates of illness, their ability to produce uh, milk, their ability to produce um, wholesome milk. So wholesome being uh, like quality. So, you know, making sure that they don't, you know, have mammary infections and stuff like that. Um, they're all things that you can uh, make. They're all things that you can improve by by management. And I think a lot of times on large farms, you, if you have well-run management, that it's going to be uh, a little bit better than than uh, these smaller farms. Man, that's so interesting. That was a lot of reasons that you just I'm listed. <laughs> and it, uh, no, that's great. And it sounds like it, it's funny. There's a saying in business uh, of what gets measured gets managed. And it sounds like yeah. that's a similar thing here with the large scale farm versus a small scale farm is a the large scale farm is able to measure things properly because they have the tools. B, they can measure things in the right quantities because it's not like N equals 50. It's like N equals a thousand or something, you know, so right. they can actually look at trends and C, they really care to measure these things and they have right. to measure these things. So they're doing that. And then all these things combine to. All right. Now we're going to manage each step of this process completely, um, which is great. So I'd love to dig into some more of the complexities behind these different things that you're changing and how and why you change them. And especially in your email that you wrote to me, one of the things that you said is uh, you said the complexity, the cost, the science and the art involved with large scale. I want to definitely want to talk about the art piece of it. But uh, before we dig into that, let's just talk about um, how a dairy farm works. So how does a dairy farm work? So th th when the, uh, a cow has a calf, do, does that cow, as long as you keep milking it from that point forward, will it ever stop lactating? Or do you have to like constantly keep this 
cow like in a perpetual state of being pregnant and having a calf or being pregnant and then you know something else yeah sure so i think a couple you know i think like a few decades ago there was some research on um trying to do uh lactations where they just kept it going for an indefinite period of time um and certainly i remember seeing some cows last year when i was uh, when i was uh, practicing that um that had been lactating for oh, going on almost two years straight um that's generally not how it's done in practice. So uh, usually the lactation will last about uh, 300 days or so. It's it's easy to uh, break it down on a yearly basis, which is um, a cow is pregnant for nine months. And we give them about 60 days at the end of their pregnancy to go dry or stop lactating before they have their next calf. Um, oftentimes higher producing cows can go, you know, quite a bit longer than that. Uh, it, it is definitely dependent on the farm. It's dependent on her ability to get pregnant, which is one of the, uh, main things that can affect the efficiency of a dairy is the ability to get cows pregnant, um, when you want them to. So, so yeah, they, they need to have calves to, uh, continue lactating. So you're um, saying that it's it, sorry, just to sum up so far sure. where we're at that yeah. on average, um, or a typical cycle would be nine months of pregnancy. Then you yep. get about 10 months of milk from that. Then you yep. let them stay dry for six months before you get them pregnant again. Then it's another nine months until you can get another 10 months of milk and the cycle continues like that. No, it's, um, I'll, I'll go from calving. So at calving, they, they're not pregnant anymore, obviously. And they start, (laughs) (laughs) and they start lactating. Um, usually you'll give them, um, at least 55, 60, 70 days before you start breeding them again. Um, this depends on the farm. It depends on the type of, uh, system they're using for, um, like estrus synchronization and breeding, um, a bunch of those things. On okay. Average, so you're getting them yeah. pregnant. You're saying you get them pregnant six months later, but they're milking that entire time. Well, yes, they're milking the entire time. And usually a herd average, um, time where they get pregnant is going to be in like the 100 to 150 day range after calving. So then they're going to lactate for about 300, 350, 360 days. And then the last 60 days of their pregnancy, so two months of their pregnancy, they stop, we, we let them stop lactating and then they calve again and then they start milking again. I get it. That totally yep. makes sense. So when the cow, so basically if you start from the birth of a cow, so the calf, you usually go about, um, two years before they have their first calf and start milking. And then, then you'll have, uh, those 60 days at the end of their pregnancy. So it's two years of no milk. And then, then every year about two months. And, and then let's see if, as far as like, how many how much cows milk a day they 
I don't know. They, we usually measure it in weight. So like we usually do it in like a hundred pounds of milk is usually the economic unit of what a farmer's paid on. So they get paid per hundred pounds of milk that they ship. So it's about 8.6 pounds per one gallon. So, um, so a lot of high producing cows will produce over a hundred pounds of milk a day. So that's over 12 gallons of milk a day that they're, that they're producing. So, and they'll do that for 300 days. Yeah, they go, they start lower and then they peak, uh, you know, a few weeks later and then at their peak milk, some cows can be up almost to 200 pounds a day. So like 24, 25 gallons a day, and then it'll decrease over, over time. But it's a tremendous amount of, of milk. And, uh, they really are kind of like athletes and you got to treat them like athletes because metabolically they are. Yeah. Yeah, man, that is impressive. Okay. Now how long, um, how long of a time each day are they being milked for? What is the rest of their life like when they're not being milked on a large scale operation? Sure. So this goes into what we, we often talk about as a time budget. And it's really important to give cows time to do the things that are necessary. Um, and those things are being milked, uh, eating, laying down and and chewing their cud and uh and sleeping and stuff and then the last one would be like standing up um and that that's what we want to minimize the most so on a daily basis uh depending on the farm they'll either be milked two or three times a day um and then there's some dairies that have gone to robots so they have robotic milkers that can let cows get milked um essentially as much as they want if if they if they let them or you can cut and you can limit them if you feel like it. But, um, usually generally conventionally is two to three times a day. So, uh, that can, that can take anywhere from, you know, an hour to three hours in terms of how long they're away from the pen that they're in. So they have to be lined up and they go into the milking parlor and they go get milked. It should take anywhere from, like eight to 12 minutes for an individual cow to walk into the parlor, get cleaned and prepped, get the milking machine put on. That's let down so great. It's milk. called the parlor. It's like they're having a yep. great time. Like they just, yeah, you know, exactly. go and mosey on into the parlor. And, and it is very interesting to see cows go into it because, um, like I said, they love consistency and they want to be milked. And so even before anyone comes to get them, cows start knowing what time it is and they get up and they wait at the gate to go in um, and to walk into the parlor. And you can see when they're getting in there that they, they're happy to go in and they start letting down their milk sometimes even before that they're in the parlor, which is a sign of comfort because that's, you have to, they have to have oxytocin. You know, they talk about humans with oxytocin is the love hormone and stuff like that. Yeah. That oxytocin is necessary to let down milk from the udder. And when cows are frightened or they're scared or they're stressed, they don't have nearly as much oxytocin, which can affect how they milk. So, um, you know, they go in there and they're, you know, comfortable and they get milked. 
for the reasons you just said, is that why well, I, I kind of figured that probably most dairies nowadays will be doing robotic operations. But uh, do, does that tend to scare the cows more? And are some dairies still just doing it by hand? Um, I mean, no, no, no one's really doing it by hand. So they have milking machines that are it's a vacuum powered uh, system where they have cups that essentially will attach to eat each teat. And then they apply pulsations of a vacuum that will will kind of simulate what a calf would do mm-hmm. when they were on the teat. And then that'll draw the, the milk out. Um, as far as the robotic milkers go, that is more a... So a conventional system, think about like a row of uh, parallel parked cars, essentially. The cows will come in and they get parked in a parking spot. And, and then they have work, there's workers there that go through the cows and they prep them. So they clean off their teats. They strip out the first few bits of milk to check, to make sure that there's no sort of, uh, impending infection or that the milk is discolored or anything like that. And then they get the milking machine put on, it takes their milk out, um, and then it disconnects and then they get um, they get cleaned and they get a, a, a teat dip put on, which helps prevent any new infections. And then, which <laughs> well, is, all this terminology, which is, it's so yeah, good. <laughs> which is iodine or like a, like a, a yeah, same thing if you go and it's get surgery, a, what they do. All right. It's not a antibiotic or anything like that. And then they go back to their pen. Uh, that's, that's in the, the, the dairy somewhere. And then there they have a a long row of either headlocks, which are just bars that when they stick their head through, um, it can it can lock at the top um, when you pull a lever. So that way, if the cows need to be um, held like stationary while a vet comes in and and checks certain cows or uh, someone comes by and does breeding that day. They get locked up while they're eating. Um, some dairies don't have that; they just have a feed bunk, and they get and they get free access to food all the time when they're in their pen. And then most dairies use a system called a free stall, which is essentially like a, you know, dormitory for cows. They have a bunch of areas that are separated by. Uh, they have little separations, but it's, you know, a kind of a cubby that they can go in. It, they can see all of the other cows. They can see all around them. Uh, and, and the most popular bedding they use is sand. Um, so the cows will lay down in their sand beds and then they'll chew their cud or chew the, you know, their food. They'll regurgitate it and chew it and swallow it again. Um and that's kind of their their system. Um, and we want to make sure that we minimize the time that they're standing up and waiting to go get milked because the three main things that a cow needs to be doing to be comfortable and to be healthy and to be profitable are eat, lay down, and get milked. Anything else is kind of distracting from that. Now, I think that a lot of people would be under the impression that a small-scale farm would have a maybe uh maybe yeah you can't provide as rich of an array of antibiotics or um as astute of observation of these animals or whatever it is but then maybe they just have kind of better living quarters and this and that in your um 
in your experience, is there any smaller or more cramped or worse living quarters in these larger farms than there are on the small farms? No, I would say on well-managed large farms that it's substantially better. Um, the, the traditional small farm um, is not usually the farm that you will see pictured as being a small farm. So the, sm- the, the small farm of old is traditionally a tie stall dairy. So those stalls that I was telling you about where the cows come and go and eat and lay down and stuff like that, a tie stall is like that, except they are tied to that stall. So they stay there and they eat and they stand up and they get milked in that location. This is old school, how they used to do it. Amish dairies, Mennonite dairies, um, you know, some very, very old way of doing it. Um, they will will oftentimes be allowed to go out to pasture in the summers and when the weather is nice. In the winters, they would be uh, essentially uh, in this barn, which would usually be a low roof line. Looks so like it's you know I remember going to some of these dairies that it was hard for me to stand up all the way because I would, I'd be hitting my head on rafters. Wow. Um, poor ventilation um, and. And, you know, poor air quality a lot of times. Um, and some people can do this very well. And some people do take really good care of their animals in that circumstance. But it, it gets to be difficult um, oftentimes. Now, what I think that you and a lot of the, the listeners might be thinking of is grazing dairies. Um, where cows are on pasture. Right, you just mentioned the pasture thing, and that was going to be my exact next question is, what about your large-scale farms? Do they let them kind of have just rec time to go out and and play? Sure. So on most commercial freestall dairies that that do that, they don't uh, go outside into pasture. Um, On a lot of grazing dairies, which I think is kind of what the popular imagination of a small farm is. They, you, you can be pretty successful at, at grazing dairies, uh, but there are a host of issues that arise when uh, you're grazing as well. So you, the cows don't have protection from the elements necessarily when they're grazing. So uh, they are outside when it's raining and cold, they're outside when it is muddy. They're outside when it is uh, 100 degrees. They are outside during all of these situations, which can drastically affect how well they produce, whether or not they have any increased mammary infections or any like mastitis, anything like that. It can affect their ability to. Um, affect whether or not they get lame. So if they start limping or have any sort of feet problems, the environment can have a huge effect on that. So actually some of the things you're mentioning probably would affect the hormones a lot in the cows, which is then obviously not good for us drinking their milk. If let's say this cow had like jacked up cortisol levels when it was being milked or something, because it just got freaking rainstormed on for the past week or something. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean i don't I, I i don't think that there's uh you know enough hormones going into the milk to to actually um cause a negative effect in in humans but it can, it certainly affects the the animal and um 
in certain areas of the country and world, um, grazing dairies are much more popular and they do do a fantastic job of, um, you know, producing milk in that system, particularly New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. Where it's just covered with grass. So why wouldn't you do that anyways? Then you don't have to pay for any feed. Right. And, um, and so that has its own pros and cons. Um, and one of the things that was, uh, you know, interesting listening to the organic farmer episode and that I was planning on talking about a little bit is that when you are on, when you are in these freestall dairies, when you have these, um, conventional dairies that we have in the United States, you are drastically reducing your, your greenhouse gas footprint, um, compared to being on a pasture. Um, you're producing less you're producing less milk on pasture and you're using more land and it's particularly with you know it's all about diluting how much greenhouse gas is going to be produced by an animal or by an operation and the only way that you can dilute that out is by increasing your efficiency. So if it, if you produce 50% more milk with the same inputs, then you are using less greenhouse gases per unit of milk, per gallon of milk that you're getting at the store. So it's kind of, it can be kind of, um, interesting, you know, seeing the difference between particularly the marketing of, um, different, markets of or different production types and and you know thinking that one is being more green or one is being more environmentally friendly or more sustainable um you know it can certainly be that in one particular way of thinking but it also has um opposite effects on on other factors it's so funny that's that was like my i'm really glad that you brought that up and i'm glad that you brought up the parallel to the organic farmer episode that was my main takeaway from that whole episode and actually as a result i've started buying traditional vegetables since that episode which is crazy and i'm like telling all my friends about it because i feel like once you hear that episode it's like you almost feel bad buying organic then it's like all right even if i want to help myself out by buying organic if I'm doing the entire world a disservice because of the worst carbon footprint and all the stuff that's just getting thrown away and all this, like that's just not like, I can't in good conscience then just go and buy organic and think that I'm being all awesome. You know, it just kind of changes your perspective on everything. And, uh, everything that you're saying right now about the milk is, uh, really in that same line. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to, buy and consume different types of food products. Um, I just think that it's important that people know what it is that goes into it. If, um, if someone wants to spend more money on organic milk or, or grass fed or grazing cow milk, that's fine. But I, I don't think that, um, I don't think that the current kind of perception is, necessarily aligned with um reality essentially so you know it's important and and sure if um if someone doesn't want to support large-scale 
agriculture, you know, that's fine. But organic dairies does not mean that they're not large scale and commercial. It just means that they're organic. And those things are not well defined, both legally and, you know, in popular belief. So, you know, it, it it takes a lot of thought to really think through this. And it's something that, you know, I do all the time, especially not coming from this background. You know, I have lots of, you know, conversations with friends about, you know, the, the, you know, the morality of, of everything that we do as people to, to animals and to the earth and everything like that. And, you know, it's just, it's important to be open to, to thinking about all that and making decisions uh, based on, you know, well thought out reasons, as opposed to what, what, you know, the advertising department of particular companies is making you think that you want to buy. Right. Or, I mean, not even that it's, it's almost the opposite. It's more just kind of like the current social zeitgeist and the current social norm and what's accepted by people our age and stuff you know that like well yeah of course i'm going to eat organic well yeah of course a small scale farm is going to be so much better um and as i've learned these past few weeks um it it, like what you're saying you you're probably only looking at a one single piece of the puzzle then and not looking at the whole puzzle you're not looking at maybe the carbon footprint you're not looking at maybe the overall care that this animal could be getting um, and having specialized people like you, like you are a veterinarian for God's sake, you are a professional that is around these cows every day and a small scale farm is not going to be able to pay a veterinarian to be by their cows every day and to be monitoring their nutrition. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a factor. And, um, you know, it, it just, you know, it just comes down to, um, what society wants essentially it's important to give the public the ability to know that we are doing what is necessary to provide a certain level of care to the animals uh to to you know before that they they are made into the food that they want um and certainly that level of care is all has been and always will be probably in flux a little bit. There's, you know, in the past it was a, it was a lower level of care, I think, than it is now. And so as time goes along and, and, and the public wants public wants to know and be assured that the animals are well taken care of, I think that it's, you know, part of our responsibility to to show them that and to not be afraid to show them that. And, and hopefully, hopefully that's the way that things go in the future. And I know that there are some farms around the country that have taken that to heart and are open to the public and are more than happy to show what happens on a day-to-day basis from calving to all the way through lactation. And, and, um, I think that's really important for the industry going forward. And I urge anyone who is interested to, reach out to farms in their area, Google places that allow farm tours and stuff like that and really see how it is. And then you can make the decision yourself if you're okay with it or not. If you want to 
go to a grazing dairy instead of commercial milk. If you don't want to drink milk at all, if you don't want to eat beef or you do want to eat beef or what kind of beef, you know, I think it's important to see it for yourself and be comfortable with it. Because at the end of the day, it is an animal that we are using to produce food for us. And whether or not that's milk or beef um, or any other type of animal product, at the at the end of the at the end of the system is an animal that has to be killed for us to to consume, and I think a lot of people don't think about that, and it's something that I think about a lot, and um, you know it's it's hard sometimes, but but I think everyone needs to wrap their head around that a little bit and to uh, really understand what they're what they're doing and, and either be okay with it or not okay with it. But, um, I think knowing is important. Yeah, absolutely, man. Great advice. I had looked up this, this thing earlier, um, that I, that we didn't get to, which was, we always, we always talk about in animal science stuff about how over the years, um, the production and the efficiency of cows has gone up dramatically. And so I looked up the information just so you can have it. In 1944, there were about 25 million cows, dairy cows. And today there's a little over 9 million. And in so those 25 million cows in 1944 produced about 60% of the milk that is produced now by 9 million cows. So compared to 1944, it would take 21% of the animals to produce the same amount of milk. It would take 23% amount of the same feed, 35% of the water, and only 10% of the land that it took in 1944 to produce that same amount of milk. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool, man. That is awesome. Um, let's, uh, let's dig in a little bit more about what you do. So you mentioned the complexity and the art involved in, uh, in everything that you're doing. So talk to us about some of the challenges that you look at when you're trying to determine, uh, the nutrition for these cows and what sorts of changes might need to be made for the cow. Um, do these sorts of like artistic changes that you're making, uh, have to do with, uh, like the geography, the season, like what, what are the things that, that change all of this? Sure. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that go into it. So oftentimes nutritionists will use different software that's available to, um, to give estimates of, you know, how much they expect an animal to produce in terms of milk or how much weight they're expected to gain or making sure that they are meeting certain uh, vitamin and mineral requirements. And all of the, you know, all of this depends on the, the feed that you have available. So um, it's important to, to, you know, know what you're getting and then, and then put it all together into a ration that, um, has everything that that cow needs. And the way that this changes is definitely dependent on geography. So, um, because the food that they're getting is, you know, a crop, it's going to vary depending on where it's grown and the, and the, um, 
you know, rainfall and, and sunlight and all that stuff during the growing season. And you have to be able to make adjustments on what you're feeding, depending on, on how that changed. And that can, that can, you know, that's always in flux and you always have to keep knowing, you know, what, what, what it is that your ingredients are. And then you have to look at the cows. You have to look at them and see, is what I put down on paper really doing what I expected it to do? Um, and this is where it kind of gets into the the art part of it, is that it's not just like like a dog food that you put together into a kibble and then you can feed to a dog. Because cows and other ruminants like goats and sheep and stuff have a rumen, um, they are very dependent on the the how the food is in terms of shape and in terms of uh what it what it what its physical characteristics are um and so you can have all the ingredients right but if it's not cut the correct length if it's too long versus too short if it's too wet versus too dry if it um was a little if it has mold on it if it's old if it has any of these things it can drastically affect the animal's performance but also the animal's health and Wait, what that's crazy yeah, i mean the, so, the, the mold piece makes sense but like i can't imagine yeah. that the length of the cut and stuff like that that's crazy yeah so like the quick primer on ruminants is that just like you're taught in school like cows have four stomachs right well like four parts of their stomach and the rumen, which is the really big one, is like a, a 55-gallon drum, essentially, inside the cow. And when the cow eats, this is the, the, the greatest thing about cows, is that they can eat food that we cannot use. So they can eat grass. They can eat um, the stalks of plants. They can eat just things that we cannot digest as humans. And they go, it goes into the rumen where they're, it's full of microbes and it's full of different little bugs that can break down those materials, the cellulose, and, and, and they make more bacteria. And they make these things called volatile fatty acids, which can then be absorbed and be used as nutrition for the cow. And when you have that uh, colony of, microbes inside the cow you are essentially feeding the cow and you're feeding the microbes and if you have food that is ground down into very very small pieces there the the feed will go into the rumen and then it will leave and go through the rest of the digestive tract too quickly or it will get broken down by the bacteria too quickly which can then lead to to other diseases, something called ruminacidosis. And uh, the same thing goes with if it's too long. If it's too long, it physically inhibits how much the animal can eat. Just like if you're filling a, a, a pillowcase with long hay versus flour, the one with the flour is going to be much heavier, right? So the same thing goes if it's too long, they can't eat enough to sustain themselves sometimes. So you have to make sure you're in this sweet spot all the time. And any changes to that, any change to, 
if if the feeder on the farm uh, you know, gets lazy and falls asleep and it mixes the food too much and they get too fine, you can then have a problem where your cows are getting sick. Or the opposite, where you don't do it enough and your cows just won't eat enough food to produce what they're supposed to and they start, you know, losing weight and things like that. That's So, so what happens when the cows are grazing and they're just chomping down on uh, grass all day by themselves? So when they eat grass, they are limited by what they can eat um a lot of times uh it'll be okay and they'll they'll manage um but that's one of the main reasons why grazing dairies are not going to produce as much milk per cow as as a conventional uh freestall dairy or or, uh, inside you know uh, inside a building type of thing Uh, so mm, because of lesser density of food you're saying like they it's lesser density and it's variable so um when you are feeding cows in the dairies that i'm talking about you have this stuff called silage which is usually the base of diets here in the united states which can be made out of corn or it can be made out of grasses and stuff like that which is basically you cut the whole plant and you stick it in a in an area and you cover it and you prevent oxygen from getting inside of it. And you're essentially creating a pickle. Uh, we, we used to talk about it like, uh, like kimchi was human silage, essentially. Hmm. It's, uh, it's like a pickle. So you get to keep that. And when you mix it into the diets, you're able to, to distribute things and even out any differences between the fields where you got that from. But when cows are on pasture, you're dependent on the age of the grass, how um, how fibrous it is, how fresh it is, um, if it's rained recently. Any of those things um, can have a big effect on the the diet that the cow is eating, and therefore her her status as far as production and health and all that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Let's finish up with any any sort of weird. Interesting, cool, fun dairy buying advice that you could give us now that you've, you know, been on so many farms. Next time we're at the market, what uh, what advice would you give us? Uh, my advice would be don't feel guilty one way or the other. Um, and don't assume that that the picture on the outside of the carton or the bottle is where you're getting milk <laughs> from. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, like I said, the largest dairy I've ever been on was an organic dairy and, you know, it's 10,000 cows under one roof and, you know, that's not the picture on the container, but, uh, you know, it's just important to understand that. Um, and just if you feel like a particular type of system gives you a, a better product, then, then go with that. But I would hesitate to make the choice based on um, just knowing whether or not it's a uh, organic or grazing or anything like that. Um, and plus these small farms, if they're not organic or they're not grazing, their milk gets processed along with large farms milk. It all gets put together. Um, it's not just because you're small doesn't mean you know that it gets put in a case with just with just small milk. Um, overall, I mean, uh, I wouldn't be afraid of, of the products that are out there. They're super safe. Um, 
pasteurization is a wonderful thing. Uh, it, it has helped us, you know, not have, you know, a, a large proportion of our children die early in life. So that's a plus. Um, and, and, you know, don't be, don't worry about it. Just, just enjoy, enjoy your food. Know that there's people out there that care about producing quality products and produce and care about taking care of the animals and letting them live happy lives. And um, if you have any questions or concerns about that, I guarantee you'll be able to find someone within the industry that would love to talk to you and love to show you uh, what it's what it's like. And and if anyone you know wants to ask me any more questions, they can or uh, emails, whatever. Um, we can we can do that. Awesome, man. Yeah. Just send me an email if you have more questions for Nick and, uh, and I will pass along your questions to him. Nick, thank you so much. That was great advice uh, that you gave. I appreciate all of it. And it's also deeply philosophical as well. Like don't carry <laughs> around so much guilt with you and just go with the flow. And it's, uh, it's great. If buying groceries is just the same as the rest of life, you know? Yeah. Don't be ignorant about it. I mean, like, like I said before, like I don't want people to be ignorant and just think that it's, uh, you know, guilt-free. I think uh, you know a small share of guilt is is in store. I mean, but <laughs> right. But as far as differences between them, uh, probably don't feel too guilty. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. All <laughs> right, Nick. Well, thank you so much, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.